It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I am here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by Joe Serencioni, a distinguished non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute and a national security analyst. He is our go-to person for all things nuclear. Joe, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Zerlina. Thank you very much for having me on. Of course. So my first question is just to set up where we are right as we sit here right now. I mean, yesterday we woke up um, to mm. the very concerning headline about the power being <laughs> out at Chernobyl. And we all sort of held our breath, hoping that nothing else went wrong. Where is this? What's the status of the situation right now? OK, so for one of the few times that I'm talking to you, I actually have some good news. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I know people say they're happy to see me, but they're not really happy to see me. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's uh, it's um, it's stable. The situation appears to be stable. Still quite serious, but uh, but stable at both of the of the plants, both the Chernobyl uh, nuclear reactor that was the site of the worst nuclear reactor disaster in history, um, an old site, a non-functioning site, which is basically a storage site for the radioactive waste resulting from that disaster, and at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the largest power plant in Europe. Uh, with six reactors that the Russians stormed last week. Both sites are, are stable. Um, the, the issue has been the supply of electricity to the plants. We got a big scare yesterday when we woke up to tweets from the Ukrainian foreign minister that the electricity had been cut off to the Chernobyl site and that he said there was only 48 hours worth of backup generator power there and that after that, the fuel rods would start to heat up possibly triggering uh, radiation releases, maybe even a meltdown. Well, we, we clarified over the day, the director general of the Atomic International Atomic Energy Agency said, well, look, um, the, the heat load for those rods, which are quite old, you know, two decades old, and the water that exists in the ponds, the pools, are, in, are uh, mean that even without electricity, those rods will stay safe for four to seven weeks before you're going to have a serious radiation leak. So it's, the situation is, is not over. The crisis is still there. But the immediate radiation danger... The countdown clock is different. Exactly. We've got weeks got to <laughs> fix this, not days. <laughs> what about... so? The, the the thing that made me very nervous after waking up to those headlines yesterday morning was that the UN monitoring officials said that they had lost contact with Chernobyl. And there was some question about the workers at Chernobyl and who was actually in charge. Are, are you concerned about that as well? Absolutely. So <laughs> this is the less good news. You know, this is okay, cool. <laughs> there, you know, operating a nuclear power facility is difficult, even at the best of times. You know, this isn't Homer Simpson operating these plants. The, these, these are trained, right, this isn't Springfield. This is, these are trained technicians, you know, who spend their lives uh, learning their craft. And so you need them to be in optimal condition. Well, that is not what's going on at both of these nuclear power plants. In fact, 
the IAEA director publishes what he calls seven pillars of uh, standards, really, for safe and secure operation of nuclear facilities. I was just going down the list last night, and the Russians are violating every one of them. I mean, things like ensuring the physical integrity of the facilities. Well, the Russians have attacked the facilities. They've lodged mortars at the facilities. They appear to have cracked one of the containment structures at the Zaporizhia uh, site. Make sure that all the equipment is safe and functioning at all times. Nope. That's not happening. The staff must must be able to operate freely and without duress. Nope, they're operating at gunpoint. The staff hasn't been able to leave these facilities since they took over. In other words, there's no shift changes. They're cut off from their family. Um, oh, yes, have a secure power supply to the reactors. I could go on, but you get the point here. All the things mm -hmm. that you need to do to make sure these plants are being operated safely are, are being violated. So even though there's... Right now, everything is, is the buildings are sound. Right now, the, the fuel, both in the reactors and in the fuel ponds, appears secure. There's no guarantee that this situation is going to continue. And by the way, the Russian forces are advancing on a, another reactor site, the second largest in Ukraine, Yuznukryask, Yuznukryask reactor, which has got, I think, three um, reactors at that plant. So this could, could get worse. That was the end of my good news. Can, can I ask it? I, like, this is probably going to be a question that is rooted in 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 just a, an utter lack of knowledge. But I'm assuming that a lot of people listening have the same utter lack of knowledge that I do. What would be the point of Russia oh. taking over these nuclear sites? <clears throat> like, what is the military advantage to holding them? Is you it know, just that, to terrify us, or is there more? You know, that is a really good question, and it's it's the kind of thing we are raising. From the very beginning, what's the point of his invasion? Why is he doing this? I mean, that's why so many were wrong about whether Putin would go in or not. We thought it was crazy. It's a stupid thing to do. Well, we learned in 2003 with George W. Bush, just because something is stupid doesn't mean a country won't do it. Um, and so and so why are they seizing this? Well, the, the thinking is, number one, it's a traditional military objective. You seize the, 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 the communication nodes, you see, seize the power nodes. So this is the, the uh, nuclear reactors provide electricity for the, the, the country of Ukraine. The Zaporizhia site, um, something like 20% of the electricity of the country comes out of that one facility. Um, so you seize that, even though that violates international law. International law, the Geneva Conventions, you cannot target civilians. Well, we see what's happening there. You cannot mm -hmm. intentionally target civilian infrastructure. Well, we see what's hospitals, schools, etc., power plants. There's a whole separate convention against targeting nuclear facilities for obvious reasons. And no country has ever done this before. And, and now we have Ukraine doing it twice. I mean, uh, Russia doing it twice in Ukraine just in the last week. So it, 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 perhaps it's just the military objective, seize the electricity. But there are other ways to do that. There are other ways to make sure you're controlling the electricity. And Chernobyl, that doesn't produce electricity. That is just a gigantic waste site. I mean, it's got to be in the top of your list of places I do not want to go in the world. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and yet that's where they went. So there seems to be something else going on, perhaps psychological, that, that Putin sees these as power symbols, and he, you know, literally, and he's going to right. grab those power symbols. And then it gets a little darker. 
Like what, what, what are his intentions here? Is it just to control the electricity? Well, why Chernobyl? Maybe it's logistics. He wants to make sure there's no attack on his supply lines because Chernobyl is on the invasion path to Kyiv. So he may just want to secure the facility, but still you could surround it without taking it and be far easier or without occupying it. So maybe there's something else going on. He may see this as a, a threat to the Ukrainians, a terror threat that I've got your plants, don't mess with me or something terrible could happen. And maybe he does want something terrible to happen. You can't rule out the possibility of sabotage of the plants. If he's losing the war, what does he do in retreat? Does he get like Hitler and decide to mm -hmm. bur burn everything down as, as he retreats? So, uh, so we don't, we, the answer is we don't really know. And the, the possible answers range from standard military to truly terrifying. Yeah, that's actually the scenario I think that you've helped me understand is the scariest um, in this particular moment. It's not necessarily um, simply that he's going, to, you know, like I, I, I think we started the invasion. A lot of people were afraid of about afraid of a nuclear bomb, like a bomb being launched. Mm -hmm. Now I'm just afraid of like an accident or a mistake. But I also have understood through your analysis the ways in which he can utilize a nuclear power plant by taking it over as blackmail, essentially, to say like, I will do something here that will, um, you know, incite a nuclear event of some sort and, and you know, spread radiation unless you do X, Y, Z for me or unless you just mm -hmm. let me keep going or set up my borders where I want to set them up and take over these four parts of the country and call it Russia. And this is this is what I'm doing. And yeah. all with the threat of, you know, the nuclear uh, incident occurring. I mean, do you get the sense that he cares about the safety or anything about anyone? Because in, in one of the weird parts about this is that if something were to happen at Chernobyl, an accident, totally possible, um, some of the fallout would would go and harm people who, in Russia itself. Like that, right. it seems like you know you're shooting yourself in your own foot. But from Putin's perspective, do you do you get the sense that he even cares about that at this point? I get this distinct sense that he couldn't care less about that, that that is the opposite of his caring is not the operative motive in, in this invasion. This is a brutal war and it's going to get get more brutal. You know, when we were talking yesterday on your, your Peacock TV show, I said that I'd never seen this confluence of nuclear risks in one place at one time. Mm. And that got you tweeted it out and that got got picked up and a number of people quoted me on that uh, uh, since. And that's, this is true in Ukraine. You know, there's so much going on right now. It's hard to, to grasp. It's hard to keep track. In fact, so much, you know, we want to look away from the horrors that we're seeing, but we shouldn't accept any of this as normal. You know, nobody's ever attacked a plant. Nobody's ever seized a plant. Uh, the, uh, the, plus the actual nuclear weapons threats that he's making. He exercised nuclear capable weapons before the invasion. He's made multiple threats to use nuclear weapons against those who should uh, oppose him. He's falsely claimed that Ukraine was trying to build nuclear weapons, com completely false. They cannot do it. They're physically incapable of building nuclear weapons. So all these threats will sort of get, get jumbled up, raising the stakes. And I think one of his main objectives 
is to terrorize the Ukrainian people, is to scare them into submission, including with his brutal bombardment. He's obviously indiscriminately shelling um, uh, the the Iranian, the, the Ukrainian people, the way he shelled the people of uh, of Syria, mm-hmm. particularly in, right. in Aleppo, and the way he shelled the Chechens, Chechens in the 1999 attack on, on Grozny. And, you know, in both of those cases, we were appalled, but they were little more distant for us, you know, um, the, he attacked the, the Chechens, but they were Muslim, you know, and maybe terrorists. So we, we, we looked the way they attacked the Syrians, but they were brown and unfamiliar. And, you know, we looked, well, now he's attacking the Ukrainians in exactly the same way in the heart of Europe. And, um, and the most, mostly white West is finally waking up to the threat and saying, we've got to do something to stop him. And now we're scrambling to find those ways. Yeah, I mean, we have we've already seen what he's capable of. He's literally he's shown us multiple times. So the the idea that that there that for some reason he would behave differently this time is that grounded in anything other than like white supremacy? Yeah, I, 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 I'm sorry, not yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I got it. <laughs> yeah, it's no, it's you know we just didn't think that this kind of warfare would come to white Europeans, right? And I mean, it's not just that the Ukrainians are white, they're also Europeans. And this is a site of, of the World War II atrocities. So it evokes sort of a collective memory, this living memory of what happened to these to Ukraine in the 1940s, uh, in the 1930s. And of course, it's highly televised. The other conflicts right. were did have social media. It's, it's not true that this is, you know, the first TikTok. Well, it is the first TikTok war. But I was watching these conflicts over Zoom, especially in Syria and paying attention to them. Um, but the publicity about this war is just unavoidable. You cannot escape it. It's everywhere. And of course, many, many, many of these people speak English. So it's much easier to hear their firsthand accounts. And they're terrifying. So it's a combination of that. But I would say it's primarily because the victims are mm-hmm. white. I'm not entirely surprised, I gotta say. I know. <laughs> but I but I still wish it were something else. So it also feels like it, like it's not just the people currently in Ukraine that he is trying to hold hostage and terrorize. Like it is it is anybody involved in NATO, it is all of Europe. Like what Well what that do you is a think that's a very yeah. good point. I know which is I know where you're going. That's a, a very, very, okay. very good point. You know, the uh, the uh, lots of um, invaders have used these kinds of tactics. The, the Mongols, one of the most effective, largest empires in history, used to go to a town and they would say, surrender to us and you won't be harmed. Resist us and we will destroy you. And the towns that resisted were destroyed. And it was not just for that town. That was a message they wanted to send to everybody you know, surrender or die. And that may very well be his purpose here, that even though he's attacking Ukraine right now, he is signaling to the rest of Europe, to the Baltic states, to Moldova, which may very well be in his sights right now. Moldova is a small former Soviet Republic that uh, shares a border with Ukraine and also with Romania and Hungary. And, and, and he may be eyeing that as well as part of his plans. And so he's showing 
to the wor to the world, but particularly to the Eastern European countries, if you resist me, if you resist my demands, you know, I will rain down destruction on you, your family, your grandchildren. So your best course of action is to surrender to me before the fighting starts. Right. Do you think that the we talked a little bit about the no-fly zone yesterday, and you know, the, I've talked to members of the Ukrainian Parliament, as you saw. Um, obviously, the president yesterday um, of Ukraine, Zelensky, called in a Sky News interview for again for the no-fly. There's like different analyses as to um, whether or not this is a, a good idea, a bad idea. Will escalate things. I mean, how do you see that conversation shaping up? I mean, your 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 analysis comes to the conclusion that a no-fly would escalate things. But mm -hmm. walk us through it. Walk us through sure. how you get there. Well, a no-fly zone isn't, um, you know, something that is just announced. It's not like dropping a plexiglass shield over Kiev. Uh, you have to enforce it, you know. It's like a, a, a speed zone near a school. It's got to be enforced. And in this case, enforcing it means that you have to send in U.S. and NATO jets to shoot down jets that are violating it, that is, Russian jets. So at, at a minimum, you have to shoot those down. But U.S. military standards are that before we put our jets into combat situations, the first thing we do is suppress the enemy's defenses. Standard. We do it all the time. And that means you go out and you, you, you bomb from relatively long range any air defense sites, um, any ant ground-to-air missile sites. And, and those sites are scattered now with the Russian columns that are advancing, but also in Russia, uh, on the, in, in Belarus, on the border. So you would be bombing those sites. That means in the process of enforcing the no-fly zone, you would be killing perhaps hundreds of, of Russians, shooting down dozens of Russian planes. We would win. We would dominate this. We could declare it. But it would be a major combat operation with Russian forces. And the U.S. and Russia have never engaged in sustained combat since, well, since the Russian Revolution, since U.S. forces went in to try to put down the Bolshevik Revolution in 17, in 1918. I mean, it, and we don't do that for a, a reason. We This would be a, a, a major war that has nuclear implications. Both sides, the US and Russia, have thousands of nuclear weapons, including nuclear weapons whose, that are designed to integrate seamlessly with conventional forces operation. And both sides have doctrines indicating that if they are losing a combat situation with the West or with Russia, that they would escalate to the nuclear level to try to prevail. So you see where this goes. I don't have to spell it out that, that trying to put a no-fly zone starts you on a path that works more or less seamlessly up to the use of nuclear weapons and, and the, the possibility so, of a sustained nuclear war. So that's why the administration is, is, says we can't do that. It's a step too far, not just for us, but imagine what that means for the people of Ukraine. If you have this kind of combat now going on over Ukraine, if you have use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine, you know, the, the casualties would be much worse than they are now. It would make this war look like a warm-up act. If, if Ukraine is likely to be the largest target of a nuclear escalation, why, why would Zelensky be asking for the no-fly zone that would lead us inevitably down that path? 
Right. And this is the debate you see playing out in, in sort of strategic circles, not just with Zelensky, but with others. And they say, we got to call his bluff. Yes, Putin has been very clear that anyone who comes in direct combat with the Russians will, will face a nuclear threat, destruction unlike any you've ever seen, is the phrase he used. Uh, but he's bluffing. And so um, we have the superior force. We know that if we do engage him, we will win. Don't let him deter us with this nuclear bluff. So it's the Clint Eastwood question. You feeling lucky? You feeling lucky, kid? You know, punk, I guess is the actual quote. You feeling lucky, <laughs> punk? Well, that's, well, I don't feel lucky. No, no, I don't right? feel lucky. No, I don't. We're in the middle of a global <laughs> pandemic. Yeah, We're, yeah, ex exactly. This intersecting dystopia does not make me feel lucky. I do not feel lucky. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's, and so you see, and I, I gotta say, it's it's a little macho, you know. It's it's a little some for for some it is, for others it's a little desperate. Like I, we need you. You have to come save us, save us. I understand. You're in a burning house. We have a ladder that doesn't quite reach you, and you're saying jump, and. Yeah. You know, we can't, and the same is true, by the way, with the supply of jet fighters, uh, because he's, Putin has clearly said that you commit these kind of weapons to Ukraine, and we will consider that an act of combat. We will consider you engaged in combat. And so you might find those kind of threats. It's one thing to supply them with, with uh, Javelin anti-tank missiles and Stinger anti-aircraft uh, missiles, but to give them heavy equipment like jet fighters, or some say Patriot um, missiles, anti-missile systems, it's uh, that that is a major escalation. Plus, these things are very complicated. It's not clear to me that the Ukrainians can operate a Patriot missile battery, or some of the jets that that we're talking. So we have to look for other alternatives. Some of those other alternatives are to flood the uh, the combat zones with um, drones that we could give the Ukrainians. That the Ukrainians are quite good at using, and apparently have had a deadly impact Turkish made drones European made drones all kind there's very good drones out there that can do what jet fighters are supposed to do hitting the convoys hitting the ground targets but they can't actually enforce a, a no-fly zone that will be dependent on defenders on the ground with stinger missiles so. is there anything that you feel like we should be more focused on than we are like like as somebody with the breadth of knowledge that you have coming to this moment like what do you wish that the audience was more aware of well you know i didn't think the ukrainians were going to be able to hold out this long and so mm -hmm. the, the western strategy which is basically correct which is to use economic and political and diplomatic instruments to punish putin so that he'll withdraw uh, and not directly confront him with Western, that is NATO forces, um, seems sound to me. But the problem is those economic instruments take time to, to be, for him to feel the bite. Well, we're now two weeks in. I mean, if, this, if the Ukrainian forces can hold on for another week, two weeks, it's very possible that those economic instruments will do their job, that the Russian economy will come to a halt, that the Russian people will continue to be as brave as they are now and resist this, that you could get cracks in the oligarchs, although I wouldn't hold out too much hope for that because Putin controls them so, so uh, directly. 
Um, but that's the idea that you, you that the combination of resistance by Ukraine, which results in terrible casualties, but still for a war, relatively, I hate to say this, but acceptable levels of casualties, even though they're civilians, and and then the the, the, the unprecedented global sanctions that are isolating Russia, that those all come into play and Putin sues for peace. And then you have to be ready with a diplomatic off-ramp. And this is where it's going to get tough, because after this brutal war, you're going to have to give Putin some of what he wants. That's mm. how negotiations end. Americans don't like that. We like to have our wars end with unconditional surrender, World War II, World War I, the Civil War. Well, this is not going to be that. So you got to get ready for some compromise solution where Putin gets some of what he wants, even territorial concessions from Ukraine, even neutrality of Ukraine. Those are the big things that are on the table for him. Would we be willing or would the Ukrainians be willing to give that to him in order to end the slaughter? Joe Serencioni, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, I, I feel both um, smarter and and a little more afraid. So yeah. probably probably a good conversation then to be having that, right now. Well, <laughs> then uh, then I've done my job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thank yeah. you very much for having thank me you. on. It, it was good to talk to you. I hope we get a chance to come back and talk. Oh in yes, a brighter, we will have. Bright, we will have. I'm sure we will. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure we will. Please stay safe. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.